Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. David Metzger is a father, pediatric oncology nurse, podcaster, and author. His book, Nurse Papa, explores the strange intersection between his life as a father and his role as a nurse caring for sick children. David, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. Andrea, thanks for inviting me. I've been really looking forward to talking to you. Me too. And I just want the audience to know that we have been through multiple technical difficulties, but we are here now. David has written this book and I'm early in the book, but there was something that struck me that I would love to start this interview with. You say very early in the book that you were accepted into nursing school and your plan was to care for adult patients, but that plan changed. And, you know, it's one thing to be a pediatric nurse, but to be a pediatric oncology nurse, I just don't think I would be able to do it. And I admire you so much. Tell us what happened way back when in nursing school that caused this, you know, huge shift to happen. Yeah. I mean, we all have plans in life, right? But, you know, at some point you need to decide if the plan that you made still serves you. And at one point I decided that it did not, you know, I came to nursing school and I had to pick my specialty for nursing school before I even started, which is, a dubious thing to do. Yeah, it's really hard because you don't really know anything. I mean, my mom was a pediatric nurse and my dad was a doctor, but you know, I don't I can't say that they really encouraged me to go into medicine. So, you know, I picked adult acute care, which seemed like an obvious place to start. And on the first day of my first pediatric pediatric rotation, I took care of this patient who just completely changed my life. I remember I was walking down the hall and a nurse grabbed me and she said, can you watch this child? Can you get her to stop crying? And then she just ran away. So she <laughs> put me into this room <laughs> and I was wearing a gown and gloves and there was this child there. She was maybe two years old and she was standing in a crib, um, naked except for her diaper, just screaming her heart out. She was so scared. And she was covered with these sores all over her body. And it was something called Steven Johnson syndrome. It's autoimmune disorder in which you know, your body creates these sores that um, are super painful and just super scary. And she was all alone. And I had no idea in that moment how I was going to help this child. So I just picked her up and Mm -hmm. started singing to her um, a song that I'd been working on at that time. And she eventually stopped crying. And she put her thumb in her mouth. And she was just rocking with me. And it was just us there together. And I realized in in that moment that she wasn't in pain. She was just scared. And, you know, I had given her something that I didn't even know I had to give, which was my presence. You know, and that night I was laying in my bed, staring at the ceiling. And I just told myself, yeah, I'm supposed to be a pediatric nurse. Like, this is exactly what I'm supposed to do. And there's so few moments in life when you get that opportunity that, you know, the universe is telling you what you are supposed to be. And I just grabbed it. I dropped out of my program, which was unfortunate because I couldn't, you know, ultimately get my master's. But, you know, I didn't want to be a nurse for adults. I wanted to take care of kids. And that's what happened. And that was 14 years ago. 
Okay. I just got chills multiple times. Yeah, it's just such too. a beautiful story. <laughs> and why did you have to, the, the nerd in me just wants to know, why did you have to drop out of your program? Why couldn't you um, just change your focus? I wish it was that simple, but you know, most of our educational institutions are not as flexible as we would like them to be. You know, they have their numbers game that they have to fill. And um, it was unfortunate, you know, they did say I could change um, my focus and then they changed their mind. And I made the decision not to, to apply to the program again. It was just gonna be too much. So it was easier for me to get my RN license and mm -hmm. stay there one year and then just drop out of the program at that point. When did you make the change specifically to pediatric oncology? Well, I didn't make a change. I just went straight to pediatric oncology. That was my first job out of school. I've never had any other nursing jobs. And I will be honest, I probably could barely spell oncology before <laughs> I went into it. I don't know if I can spell it now. I think I got it, but some days it, but yeah, I was completely over my head. I don't think I really understood what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I had a very vague sense that the patient population would be one that would fit with me because I know that they had long-term care, that you got to know these kids really well, that you got to know their parents really well, and that you know they required a special kind of attention. So I'd like to say I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do, but I don't think it's always like that. You know, We don't live in a movie. It's not always so clear. We just have to find our path sometimes and oncology found me in that way. Wow. With my experience with my sister, we had a horrible pediatric oncology nurse, but only one. I mean, she was truly horrible, so she made up for anybody else. But, uh -huh. but, but then we also had the most wonderful nurses, and I am still connected with several of them. But our first nurse who was with us those first two weeks in the hospital when my sister was going through chemotherapy she was just there for the whole thing. And I don't want to say her name because I actually changed it in my book. <laughs> but, um, but one of the things that she did that no one else did was she really prepared us to go home. You know, we got thrown into a very emergency situation. My sister was in chemo right away. And then all of a sudden we had to go home. And the last time we had been home, she had been fine and she was still in school. And, and so nothing had been done. And she really sat us down and told us, you know, how to make our house a safe place for someone with a compromised immune system it really gave us a step-by-step -step guide to follow. And nowhere was this written down anywhere else, even though we did get lots of discharge instructions and stuff. And I just thought it was so miraculous for us that we got her as a nurse because she really set us up for success at home. I'm wondering why that is, you know, and maybe you could talk a little bit about how your role is different from the doctors because, because the doctor did not sit down and tell us this incredibly valuable information. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what happened at the institution that your sister was at. How old was she and what kind of disease did she have? She was 15 and I, she had stage four liver cancer and I was her legal guardian. Okay. Wow. Gosh. I, I always say that Discharge teaching begins on the day you arrive at the hospital because you just need to prepare people for what they're going to face at home. Even if you do an amazing job, you will fail at, <laughs> at preparing them fully. It's just the way it is. We yeah. live in, it's a very complicated, you know, set of procedures that you need to follow when you are coming out of, you know, oncology and especially when you're coming out of BMT. I'd like to say that the nurse that you guys received was a very special nurse. 
but I don't know, maybe the next nurse would have also done a great job. Um, but at our particular hospital, we have so many people who are responsible for that. Mm-hmm. You know, the nurse is generally res- going to be the person who's going to teach line care, going to teach you how to take care of that PIC or that Broviac that you're ultimately going home with. They're going to teach you about infection control. They're going to teach you about, you know, when to call the hospital, when to call your doctor. But we have nutritionists. We have um, other people who totally prepare you for how, you know, your home is supposed to be. I don't know what year your sister was diagnosed, but um, I, I'd like to think that we've come a long way as far as how we treat our patients, you know, now in 2021. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think nurses form stronger bonds than doctors? Yeah, absolutely. But I don't want to take away the bond that doctors, you know, form with their patients, because it depends on the doctor. There are some amazing doctors that just will go to the end of the earth to take care of these kids. And their role is so different from the nurses. I mean, they're developing care plans. They are, you know, really watching those labs, although good nurses will also do that. You know, they're not in the room with the, with the patients the way that nurses are. They're not holding that head over the barf bag. They're not, you know, administering pain meds. They're not sitting down at the bed and just talking for hours with these kids and, you know, letting them have their moment where they just need to speak to the universe. So inevitably, you know, the more time you spend with the person, the more, you know, that bond is going to form. And, you know, that is the most amazing part about being a nurse and about being a pediatric oncology nurse in particular, that you get to know these kids so well. You get to know their parents so well. I mean, I know the names of these kids' uncles. I know the names (laughs) of these kids' uncles' dog. Um, I know what songs they like. I know what they like, you know, when they come in you know, how they like to be accessed, you know, the little things that they're afraid of. It's just like, it is a full blown relationship. And if you don't want to embrace that, you should not be a pediatric oncology nurse because you will be overwhelmed by the amount of um, one-on-one time that you can get with the patient. How often do you see the same patient again? Quite often. I mean, you know, these kids come in a lot, you know, it's funny. So there's two types of cancer patients, I mean, this is a very broad simplification, but you know, there's the, the patient who has a very basic leukemia, they will be treated, um, you know, in an acute manner when they are first diagnosed, but they're otherwise the treatment course will be outpatient. You won't right. see them again. And then the kids that I get to know really well, they're very sick. They have retractable disease. They have oncology regimens that will keep them in the hospital for many, many months because, you know, if they leave, they'll die. Um, there are BMT patients who have sometimes been in the hospital for up to a year, sometimes longer. Oh, I mean, we're talking about a completely different population. And you know, the thing that people don't really realize about pediatric oncology is that you may have a child who's 14, gets leukemia. We you know, help him get into remission. When he's 16, he gets it again. We help him get into remission. He can be 25 and get it again. And he'll come back to us. So you know, we follow these kids all the way through their you know journey sometimes to their death so it is just you know they're part of a family what is your relationship to the parents because of course we as individuals as people we react differently to different things and mm-hmm. my sister was treated at children's hospital los angeles and as a parent one parent was allowed to stay overnight and it was just kind of interesting to see the parents who stayed overnight versus the ones who didn't, um, oftentimes just because of transportation issues. 
um, and, and the nurse's interaction with people. So I'm just, I'm just curious of what's your relationship with the parents? I mean, it's very close depending on the parent. I can't say I've seen many kids ever be left alone in the hospital. We really practice a family centered care. There's a bed in the room for that parent. It's not comfortable, but <laughs> um, you know, you're not going to be sleeping well because you know, your nurse is entering the room at all hours trying to make sure you're, the patient is safe. But it's a very close relationship. You know, the first thing I do when I've met when I meet a parent who I don't know and I'm taking care of their child is I I tell them I'm a parent or I tell them a story about my child. I, I really consider my own role of, as a dad as a calling card to let these parents know that I I'm not an expert in kids and, you know, I don't know everything, but I'm a dad and I will take care of your child exactly as I would take care of my own kid. And, you know, that was a real changing point in my career as well. When I was a nurse for six years before I had kids of my own and that transformed the way I interact with these kids, you know, before and their parents, before I had kids, I, I felt so bad for these children. I felt so bad for these parents. It was, it was just sympathy for them. But after that, I developed empathy. I could put myself in their shoes. I could really feel like what it would be like to have a child who was, you know, five years old, because I have a five-year-old who was dying. I don't ever want to be in that position, but I'm so grateful for the ability to put myself in that position and to truly empathize and be there with these parents. You know, they're in these rooms too. And, you know, it's sometimes not fun to talk to a five-year-old all day, you know, <laughs> they, we run out of things to say, right? So it's really helpful for them to have another adult in the room to chat, to relate. And that relationship is also very strong. You know, I have many patients who have passed away and I, you know, still keep in touch with their parents because we are part of their journey too. And when their child dies, they don't just lose their child, although that's the most important thing, of course. They lose these caregivers who knew their kids so well. I really consider that an important part of my job to to really check in with these parents as much as I can. What is the average age of a patient who comes into your particular treatment center? It would be what you would expect anywhere from two to 18. Mm -hmm. um, it depends on the diagnosis, you know, what kind of cancer they have, but I've, treat, I've taken care of a mother of 35 years old who had a who had AML and it was a which is typically a, a pediatric cancer and we took care of her and her kids were at her bedside when she died, so oh, I mean, there is no there's no typical and I think that you learn that very quickly when you come to work for the first day as a pediatric oncology nurse you have no idea what you're going to get it is just Russian roulette with your heart and your body that day and you just got to roll with it. Is that something you like though about your profession is that you don't know what's going to happen? I mean, I do like a day when nothing crazy happens. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want a code white, which is a pediatric emergency. I don't want a cold, a code blue, which is a parent um, who has an emergency, which happens. It definitely happens, but I'll take everything else. I will show up and take care of a child, no matter who they are, you know, what's wrong with them. If they have a bad attitude, if they hate me, which happens, you know, not everybody loves me. That's how we grow. We grow by interacting with people who don't necessarily um, reflect our same views and our same needs. I, I do love that. I think nursing is such an amazing profession because you can do so many things. Like I'm supposed to be a pediatric nurse, but you know somebody else who's not supposed to be a pediatric nurse, they can be a surgical nurse, they can do med surge, they can do 
even within the field of pediatrics, pediatrics, there's so many different places you can focus on. So I, I love what I do. Clearly, it's, you know, it's not always easy, but it's a great place to be. I do think to your point earlier, it's a calling because um, my mother was a nurse for her entire career. And she always said she did not want to work emergency and she didn't want to work labor and delivery or really anything with kids. Like she was just not going to do it, but anything else was fine. And she, and she worked in all different you know types of diseases and populations, but she just couldn't do it. And I think just because of the amount of emotions that go into it day in and day out, you mentioned earlier that when you became a father, it changed, but can you tell us maybe a specific instance or action where, you know, what you did was different because now you're a father. There are little things that maybe don't seem so remarkable. It's really knowing when to get in the space of a pediatric patient. I think that when you're not a parent, you don't necessarily engage kids the way they need to be engaged. And you talk down to them or you, um, you direct them. But sometimes you just need to get right down in there and without anticipation of them doing what you want or them listening to you. So, I mean, for instance, I remember I was taking care of this girl. It's funny. I just talked to her dad yesterday and she died two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I just felt compelled to text her dad because I just I miss kind of seeing him. You know, we had so many great talks. But in any case, I remember um, hanging out with this young lady when she was not, her parents weren't there. She was six years old and she was playing with this doll and she was putting band-aids on this doll and giving this doll shots. And it was clearly her way of just like mapping out this trauma that she endured on a daily basis. And just being there with her in that moment, knowing how to play, knowing how to help her kind of engage with this doll in the way that we engage with her. And I don't know if I'd be able to do that if I wasn't a dad, because man, that's all I do. I <laughs> 10 minutes ago, I was on the kid, I was on the rug with my kids playing Legos, and, <laughs> you know, or like teaching my daughter who is six about pregnancy. Cause that's what she wants to know about with her, like oh, Barbie no. who's dressed up as a mermaid. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations constantly. That's what parenthood is. I don't know who wrote the book on that. It's going to be fun all the time, or that's going to be easy all the time. But as a dad, you just need to like get your hands dirty and be okay with it. Um, be okay with there not being a solid resolution or answer all the time. That was one of the moments that I can point out that showed I was actually able to relate to kids because I was a dad. I, I love that. It's just, so funny. I have this image now of you, you know, playing with Barbies and Legos. <laughs> oh yeah. You've mentioned several times that you've had patients that have died. And one of my passions is having that death conversation, which I wish I had had with my sister. And it turned out, I found out later um, from her diaries that she knew she was dying and she really protected me. You know, I think she was really protecting me. Otherwise maybe we would have had that conversation. So I'm just curious have you ever had to have the conversation or have parents approached you to have the conversation and did nursing school prepare you to have those types of conversations? It did not. (laughs) As far as nursing school goes, it prepares you to be a very good nursing student. 
but the second you enter the floor, it is the Wild West. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you are going to have a you know a nurse mentor for the first couple of months who's watching you, know, watching you and guiding you and making sure you don't kill anybody. You don't, you don't learn the nitty gritty about that stuff in nursing school. Maybe you do now. I mean, I, 15 years later, I, I hope that they're preparing students to really engage in these really important discussions. But I don't know if you're able to as a young nurse or as a young person. I think just in the way I would not have been able to write this book, which really kind of focuses on being a parent and navigating this world as a parent um, who's also a pediatric nurse. I think it takes a real life experience to understand these things and have an opinion about them and to be able to be able to be eloquent about them. So I don't know, people could have referred me to a book like mine, maybe, and show me how it would be best to engage with parents. But I don't think I would have truly understood the lesson until I had to engage with it myself. And, you know, that also involves being uncomfortable and putting yourself in situations that don't feel good. Because one thing I really realized, it was a few years into my nursing career, I had this conversation with this mom. And she said, you know what, you can talk about my son, you can talk about my son dying, or in her case, her son had already died. So you can talk to me about it. Don't think that you're going to remind me about it, that I somehow forgot about this horrible thing that happened. I think about it all the time. And it made me realize that like, all this is all this discomfort was mine. I was bringing that to the to the you know the stage we were in, and I just needed to get over that. I needed to put myself in in a place where I wasn't worrying about how I was feeling and projecting that upon you know this person. You just have to meet people where they are, and quite often that's not talking about the the death of their son or daughter. I mean, that's not a a great topic for most people, and they will have to come to that on their own. So I have had that discussion, you know, taking care of a dying child and having them ask when I think it's going to happen. And I just tell them, honestly, I mean, sometimes you have to be very clinical about it. And I think what's really hard for people is not knowing. And when you kind of map out the steps of dying, it's helpful. It's not easy to hear, but it's it's helpful. And the same thing with, with children. They will not usually engage with the actual phenomena of dying, but there's so many ways that they will tell you that they're ready to go. It's a real tightrope act, just like parenting. You just have to kind of like follow the the blow of the wind and make sure you don't fall over. Oh, I really love that. And I agree that it's often the other person's discomfort. At least I, I find that's why people can't talk to me about it. Um, but that could, we could go down a whole rabbit hole on that. I won't. Oh, we could. Um, we could go there together, you know, because it's <laughs> it, it takes experience to be able to go there. Yeah. And I have found that, um, especially the first few years after my sister died, I mean, she was my sister, I was her parent, I was her legal guardian. And so it was this huge gaping hole. And I found that people just didn't know what to say to me anymore. And they were, it seemed like they were always trying to make themselves feel better. And it's like, well, a steak and a glass of wine isn't going to make me feel better, but I'm glad <laughs> it makes you feel better. And I think there's yeah. someone in particular but I do want to ask you if there was ever a time when you supported the parents and you may have been going against doctor's orders. I don't disregard a doctor's order, but you know, there are many times when I have to tell a doctor or suggest to a doctor that there's something else we can do that maybe 
considers the family and the child more than they actually are already considering them. You know, because I've been working for 13 years now, I'm not an expert, but um, I know lots of stuff. I know how to take care of these kids. And sometimes the person writing their orders is a resident who's been there for a year. I really consider it, consider it a process of working together. It's not about being against somebody or um, making somebody feel bad for their lack of knowledge, um, but it's about helping them kind of come to the best solution for that family. And I think that, um, you know, maybe that viewpoint is not always what is primary in a doctor's mind because they are just working their best to save this child in their algorithm. The, vent the ventilator is the next step, right? Um, to prolong life. And you know, sometimes kids go on ventilators and they don't, call, they don't come off. So teaching somebody how to listen is really, really important. And sometimes you need to learn that lesson yourself. I've had to learn it many, many times. Um, I can't think of a specific situation in which I counteracted a doctor in that way, but it's happened many times, I'm sure. Tell me about a patient who really touched your heart or even maybe changed the way that you do things. I will tell you this story, Andrea. I hope you have a, a few minutes because <laughs> this is what made me write my book. Okay. So I was, I was already a dad and my second child, my son was about to be born in two weeks. And I was just primed with emotion at that point, right? Cause like, you know, it's stressful. And I was, there was lots of anticipation. And I accepted this patient whose name was Jason. It's not his real name. And he was planning on coming to the hospital for a liver transplant. So he was a chronically ill child. He was 15 mm -hmm. and he was ready to just like hit that next step, have a new liver move on with his life and hopefully experience life. And when he got to the hospital and they did further work, work up, they realized he had this giant tumor wrapped around his liver. Like there was number one, no way he was getting a liver transplant. And number two, he was told he was going to die because it was just like so far advanced. And I'm not sure why they hadn't seen it before. And to see this child go through this existential change to realize he wasn't going to live anymore. It was so hard for me as a caregiver. And Jason, this, this teenager, he was in such pain, not only physical pain, because that was just, that was him. That was the face that he showed the world, but just this emotional, philosophical, existential pain that he just couldn't come to terms with because he didn't have that opportunity. He wasn't so sick that he thought he was going to die in two weeks. And it was just so hard to engage with him in, in this way. I mean, he had this swarm of family around him, uncles and aunts and cousins underneath, underneath the bed. And, you know, these two parents divorced, but like somehow coming together to be parents for him. And, you know, he rarely said a word. He would like, he could barely talk over a whisper, but every now and then he would like raise his hand up that was like tethered with IVs to like kind of silence the room so he could say something, but he never said anything. And he would, he would sometimes whisper in his dad's ear, and I remember there was this day and he, I'd taken care of him for a few weeks and really never broken through to that place where we could know each other. And I insisted on that day that we give him a bath because he'd just been in bed for so long and he'd just been denying us for so long. And, you know, part of being a nurse is that you just like, you take care of people. So when you know they need to be bathed, you bathe them and somehow you get them to do it. I just wouldn't leave them alone. I'm like, we're gonna, we need to give you a bath today, Jason. So he eventually let us do it. And I remember he was, he was standing there and part of it, I really wanted to get him out of bed so I could see his skin. And he was standing there naked and holding onto my shoulders. And I had two nurses helping me to kind of 
rub him down and he was shaking and I could feel his fingernails in my, on my shoulder. And it was this moment of where we were all together just there trying to help him. And when we got him back in bed, he was like a new boy. He, you know, had his hair brushed back and he had his glasses on and he looked at me and I, think, I swear it was the first time he'd ever seen me. And, you know, I don't think he ever saw me as a person until that moment when we just had this close interaction. And a few hours later, we were in his room and the lights were off and I thought he was sleeping. And I, it was so quiet in there. I could hear the medication pump like humming next to me <laughs> and I was charting. And all of a sudden he said, David. And he had never said my name before. I didn't even know he knew my name. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so surprised. Like I was looking around to see who said that. (laughs) And I said, hey, Jason, what's up? What can I do for you? And he said, David, do you have cats? And I I said, yes, we have a cat. But she gets mostly ignored these days because we have a toddler. And he said, well, we have three cats, but we had to put one down because she was sick. And I said, Jason, I'm I'm so sorry that you had to put your cat to sleep. And he said, it's okay, David. If you love cats, you have to be okay with them dying. And it was like so clear to me in that moment that he was, I mean, he was talking about his cat, but he was talking about himself too, that if you love life, you have to be okay with dying because we're all gonna die. But how do we live? And, you know, in that moment, I just like, I knew that people had to hear these stories and I knew that it was important for me to write down these stories and live them And then, you know, he died two weeks later, but he's never, ever left my thoughts. And, you know, I I try to guide myself by thinking about him and other patients who've had this profound effect on me. Well, first of all, the story is really beautiful and the podcast listeners can't see it, but I'm tearing up. I feel like from what I've read so far of your book, that it might be a great educational tool, not just for nurses, but for doctors in med school. Um, I really do. So just planting that seed, because that was such a beautiful story. And as a parent and as a caregiver, I had to live in a very healthy state of denial. I never thought I was going to say goodbye to my sister. Like I couldn't even conceive of that. I can now upon reflection, she sounds like she was very much like your patient, Jason, because she knew Like when I was able to go back after she was gone and look at her journals and all this stuff that she wouldn't let me read, she absolutely, she knew the moment she got worse. Like she, she just knew and she didn't let on really at all. Yeah. Aren't kids great. They protect their parents. They do. They really, really do. I think you find out just how resilient kids are when, when they're sick. I remember I was a very young nurse and I was standing next to a dying boy and his dad and another nurse and the dad was just grieving so hard he was just so he was so in it in that moment and you know his son was uptunded and you know just just laying there and this seasoned nurse who was standing next to me she turned to the dad and she said have you told him that it's okay that he can die if he wants to mm-hmm. and i was so horrified in that moment that this nurse was talking about her his son being dead and right in front of him just as the son lay there but then i realized in that moment it was such a gift to give to this dad because kids need the permission to tell their kids tell their parents these things even if they are passed out there i feel like there are ways that they communicate to their parents but especially when they're awake to be able to tell them what they're afraid of and to you know tell them what they want 
and they're not always going to do it. You know, kids are mysteries so many, you know, so often, and they, they, they like to contain those mysteries, you know, within themselves, but it's okay to let your kids know that they can tell you anything they want to and ex expect that they won't tell you so much. Are you the kind of person where when you go out now, kids are attracted to you and they talk to you. And of course I don't mean attracted in the physical sense, but they just mm -hmm. come up to you and start talking because I, I was always like that with kids, even before I got custody of my sister, like, you know, I could be on a train, I kid you not. And one time these two uh, preteens came up to me like out of nowhere on a train and said, would you play cards with us? <laughs> and I'm just, I, I feel like you probably give off that energy. And does that ever happen to you? It does happen to me. I don't know what energy I give off. I mean, I'm super open per person. I will talk to absolutely anybody. And I love having conversations with strangers and especially with strange kids. But, you know, what I, what I really think about is that playground dad. You know, we all spend time on the playground with our kids. When a kid falls down or a kid's crying and, you know, you don't see any parent around, you help them up. You're a parent there. You're not only your kid's parent, you're their parent. And it can get you in trouble. Actually, this just happened two days ago. I was at a playground with my kids and there was this, she was probably three years old and she was crying so much. Just, just, she was horrified. She was sitting on the steps crying. I looked around, I didn't see any parents. Nobody was there. You know, there were a few parents sitting by, but they were totally ignoring her. And I went up and sat next to her and she freaked out <laughs> when, I said, when I talked to her. And then oh, no. those, those two parents that were sitting next to her, those were her parents. Those, those were her parents because they were ignoring her. I don't think it was in a bad way. I think what was happening was that she was having a classic tantrum and they were letting her tantrum it out. Right. They were but letting... I, had no, I had no idea what, what was happening. And I felt so bad that I'd interrupted their parenting. They immediately started paying attention to their child at that time because obviously it was not going to go anywhere. If a child is in distress next to me, I will, I will help that child. <laughs> Everybody should, and I will play cards with you too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, this reminds me of when I was a, a, a teenager and I was 14 um, or about to be 14. My sister was born, so significant age difference. And everyone, especially after I had my driver's license and she was always with me, everyone just assumed I was this teenage mom. And one time I took her to the mall and she was at that, you know, that fantastic, you know, two, two and a half stage of temper tantrums constantly. And she, did the full on threw herself down the ground, you know, you know, just, I mean, oh, yeah. ridiculous, right? C civil disobedience. Exactly. Like and I walked away a good 10 feet, but I could still see her. And, and I know now today people would probably be horrified by that, but I did. I walked away. I could still see her. This woman came up to me and told me what a horrible parent I was and what a horrible mother I was. And it must be because I had the child too young. I mean, she just, laid into me and I just looked at her I'm like that's my sister yeah okay that's <laughs> my sister what was the age difference between you two 14 years oh 14 gosh years. you were yeah. mom yeah and I and, and she was and she was always with me and I said that's my sister she's having a timber tantrum don't speak to her you know because I knew <laughs> she would calm down and she and she did yeah I, I, sometimes you just don't know you, yeah, yeah we all yeah. put our foot in our mouths and we all enter situations we don't understand and you know act like we should not. But um, I think yeah. your, what your intention is, is, is also important. I, I wanted to help and I failed, just like I fail with parenting every day. <laughs> David, what is one thing you wish you had known 
at the beginning of nursing school, like right at that moment when you had that realization that you needed to go into pediatrics, but what's that one thing you wish you had known? I think one thing that's really important for me that I learned was that besides a few situations, most things are not an emergency. There's so much opportunity to stop, take a breath, and figure out what you're doing. There are many moments where that can't happen. I mean, when you need to act and you need to act right away because a child is imminently dying, it happens. I've been in those situations and I've frozen and I've, most of the times you can think about it. How should this med be administered? How should I act in this social situation? You don't just have to act, you can think and you can reflect. And there are so many times when I didn't do that and I think that I failed myself and I failed a patient in a way that um, could usually be repaired. But I think being able to pause and you know think about what the best thing to do is, it's really important. Oh gosh, I love that. And I love asking this question, especially mm -hmm. with people who have careers in healthcare. If there's only one thing you could do to improve healthcare in the US, what would it be and why? I mean, all of it, right? <laughs> oh, you get one, David. Sorry, you don't get all of it. One, okay. give us one I'm gonna, thing. <laughs> I'm going to send you a list later, but I mean, it's, it's certainly equity, right? We, it's not equal. We don't, there's people don't all receive the same level of healthcare and certainly don't receive it in the same time period. So it's what we constantly need to be working on about being equal for everybody. And I don't know how that's going to happen. Yeah, I'm not sure I do either, but I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. All right. Are you ready to do the Thriver rapid fire questions? Kind of lighten things up a little bit. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach, for sure. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Um, beach Boys on the beach, Beatles <laughs> in the mountains, and Rolling Stones belong in the desert. That's awesome. No one's ever said that before. <laughs> so cool. I love it. What is one word that best describes you? I think funny. I think that's what makes me a strong nurse. I think people want to laugh. And I, that's my love language to hear people laugh at something I've said. I think you're also very compassionate just from the short time we've spoken. I, I don't think you can do what you do and do it well without a really high level of compassion. I appreciate that. Sure. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? So one of my favorite songs is written by Leonard Cohen, Hallelujah, but I don't like his version of it. <laughs> and the, the version of it that made it famous was sung by Jeff Buckley. But my favorite version is sung by Rufus Wainwright. And okay. I, I want to hear that song. I do need to make a playlist. Like, I don't think I've ever gotten the same song twice either. What is the <laughs> last meal? Project. I know. Yeah, I know. I, the whole rights thing, we'd have to kind of walk around. But yeah. um, what's the last meal you want to eat? I prefer to have an empty stomach. I want to go out of this world the same way I came in. Oh, man. No, not me. No. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what are you eating? <laughs> Probably everything that I can't eat now. Like, yeah, I have all kinds of fun issues. Like I would have the ice cream that my GI doctor keeps accusing me of eating. Uh -huh. I would have, you know, the red wine that I can't tolerate anymore. Like it would just be a hot mess of food that doesn't go together and I wouldn't have to worry about it. So yeah, and it's funny. <laughs> I, I feel like in the moments of my life where I've fasted and it has happened, there's a moment when you reach this real clarity 
because you're not distracted by your body, you have to go through this hunger zone where you, all you can think about is your body. But I think that at some point you just kind of become a shell. And I want to be there. I want to be in that moment when I die where I don't, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just there. And the last person or people you want to see. I mean, I want to, I'd want to be with my kids and my wife. I mean, they're the most important people. It's funny how, sorry, this is be, not becoming a rapid question. It's <laughs> <or anymore. laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, you know, we're all born into these families. We have parents and we have, you know, brothers and sisters sometimes. And these are units that the world gives us. But then there's these units that we choose. You know, your partner, your kids, you don't choose your kids. They, they choose you. Um, and those are the units that I want to hold on to. You know, these people that just like define who you are. And for me, it's my kids and my, and my wife. And what about the last words you will speak? Oh, gee, thank you. I mean, just gratitude. And aside from Cancer U, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? I also want you to tell people about your book and how to find it. Yeah. So this amazing program that's run out of UCSF where I work is called the Survivors Clinic. And I don't know how people get involved in it necessarily, but it's run by this amazing doctor, Dr. Robert Goldsby. And, you know, it really connects kids with the just utilitarian and emotional resources they need post-oncology and transplant. Because what people don't really realize is that after you are, after you go through this cancer journey and after you're cured, you know, you're still broken in so many ways because you know, you've missed out on years of schooling in this kind of prime of your life where you socialize. You don't have the resources to kind of move on. You know, some families do because they have so many resources because they're, you know, they're better off, but not everybody has the opportunity to catch up. And, you know, this clinic really follows kids in a very medical, but also social way that I think it's just such a, it's such a service. And I, it's so amazing. I can try to get you more information about it offline. Yeah, please. We would put the link in the um, workshop and the show notes. So yeah, yeah. Def definitely. And how can people find your book? They can find my book in the all powerful Amazon. <laughs> Right. called Nurse Papa, 16 Meditations from a, uh, on Parenthood from a Pediatric Oncology Nurse. I've gotten some really great re reactions from readers so far and, you know, from parents who were able to really, you know, take in these lessons that my, my patients and their parents have taught me. You can go through this experience of, of being with a child who is very sick and dying, and it's very painful and it's very sad, but there's so many moments of transcendence and joy that happened in the hospital. You know, even when people, even when people are dying, they're still living, they're still growing, they're still bumping into things and learning what works and what doesn't. But what if you could read about that and not have to live it? What if you could, you know, soak in these just this wisdom and not have to be with your child when they're dying? I'm hoping that's the resource that my book can be to parents and to people who just have an interest in kind of expanding their minds and their hearts. Wow. And people want to get in touch with you personally. What's the best way? If you want to hear my voice on a daily basis, you can listen to my podcast, which is called Nurse Papa. Um, and in each episode, I kind of take a deep dive into a story of parenthood and hopefully come out on the, on the other side with some kind of wisdom about, you know, this journey that we're all on together. And I also talk a lot about the book and I, you know, I read chapters and kind of engage with listeners in that way. 
And then in every other episode, I answer a letter from a parent listener about their particular parent problem. You can always listen to Nurse Papa. You can write to me at david at nursepapathebook.com to send me your thoughts about the podcast, the book, or if you have a parental problem, send it to me. And I will answer that letter in a cheeky way that will hopefully <laughs> solve your problem and then some. But they're really funny, funny letters. And the stories for me have been really impactful. Oh, wow. Okay. I love that. We will put all that in the notes. David, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story today and actually meddling through all the technical difficulties. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Life is all just one technical difficulty, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sometimes more than others, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.